0: Amen. Thank you guys so much for joining us. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome to Eastside. Man, what an incredible morning already. I feel like with the worship and the confession and communion and the worship that follows, it basically kind of preaches the sermon. It preaches the gospel. And so I could just pray and finish, but I won't do that. I'll use the time they give me to tell you about what God does in Luke chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do. Go ahead and grab those. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14. If you didn't bring a Bible, we always have them available for you on the way into the worship space. Please feel free to grab one of those. Um, uh, and if you don't own a Bible, take one of those home with you. We want everyone to have the ability to spend time with God in his word every single day. So with the time we have together this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. We are in a study that's taking us all the way through the story of Jesus from the gospel of Luke. And as we follow along with Jesus in this story, we are learning how we can follow Jesus in our life. That is our goal. We just want to be open and honest with you as we follow along with Jesus in the story, uh, as the story unfolds from the gospel of Luke, our goal is that we would follow Jesus with our life. So if you got your Bible, Luke chapter 14, verse 1, it says this. It says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So let's stop right there. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. We're going to pick up the pace, but this first verse really lays out for us the setting of the story. And we know that Luke lays out his gospel, the story of Jesus, the good news of Jesus' life and his ministry in chronological order. And so Jesus is just a few short months from Jerusalem. He's going to the cross where he's going to be crucified, going to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified on the cross for our sins. But along the way, a man has got to eat, right? And so he stops at the house of a Pharisee, one of the rulers of the Pharisees, and he shares a meal with them. Now, the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were the experts in the Old Testament law. They didn't have the New Testament Bible like we have. All they had for the scriptures was the Old Testament law. And the Pharisees, they knew the law forward and backward, inside and out, and more or less, they thought they had God figured out, and therefore... When Jesus shows up on the scene claiming to be God, they struggle to put their faith or trust in Jesus because Jesus does not meet their preconceived ideas. He does not meet their expectations. He meets every expectation laid out in scripture. But they were uh, so consumed with their interpretation of the law that they missed Jesus. And so they struggled with Jesus. And they invite Jesus constantly to spend some time with them. The reason they do this, it says, is they're watching Jesus carefully. This is anything but an innocent invitation. You know, it seems like you're reading the story. It's like, oh, Jesus is invited to the dinner at a Pharisee's house and what a nice group of guys. No, they were watching Jesus carefully to see if they could catch him in some kind of trap to discredit his claim that he was God. And so that's the story, that's the setting for the story this morning. Jesus is on this final journey to Jerusalem. He's just a few months from the cross. He stops at dinner, accepts an invitation have dinner at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And while they're eating, while they're eating together, they're keeping their eye on Jesus closely to see if they can catch him doing something that would discredit him from being the son of God that he claimed. It goes on, it says, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Dropsy was... What they called uh, edema, it was a condition where the body would swell as it retained fluid. It was very obvious and very uncomfortable. There was a man who had dropsy, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees and said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and restored him and sent him away. And he said to them, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to those things. All right, so Jesus having dinner at the Pharisees' house. This man was there. We don't know if he just kind of stumbled into the dinner and the house was open and he came in because he knew Jesus was there. Maybe the religious leaders put him there on the Sabbath day with this obvious condition to see if Jesus would heal them because the Pharisees were convinced that they could not do anything on the Sabbath. The Old Testament law said on the Sabbath, on Saturday, you would rest. But the Pharisees decided that meant that they couldn't do anything. and so Jesus sees the man there, and sure enough, he sees the condition that is plaguing him physically. And Jesus asked them, like, is it lawful, according to the Old Testament, to heal this man on the Sabbath? And they don't answer. Because to the letter of the law, it was lawful, but by their interpretation of the law, it wouldn't have been lawful. And so Jesus just heals the man. He knew that the purpose of the Sabbath was to, for the people of God to rest and be restored. And so what better way to rest and be restored than to be healed? And the man gets up and walks away, and the Pharisees say nothing. Like, what could they say? So Jesus is here in their midst, having a meal, healing a person on the Sabbath day. Verse 7 says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone, to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you, both, uh, invited you both will come to you and say, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus, again, looks around. He sees he's at this dinner with the Pharisee. He's been invited in. He heals the man. And as he looks around, this incredible miracle took place in their midst. And and these guys are just jockeying for position. In those days where you sat at the dinner table, much like if you went to a wedding today, like, you know, you have, you go to a wedding and you see the the board with your place settings on it and you look for your name and you kind of know how important you are to the bride and groom based on how low your number is, right? The bride and the groom sit at table one. If you're at table 13, I hate to break it to you barely made the cut, right? Like you came because the groom's mom wanted you there. They don't even know your name, and they hope you brought a good gift. And so it was in those days when they had a dinner, uh, the closer you sat to the host, the more prestigious you were, the higher you uh, ranked in the pecking order. And these guys at the dinner table with Jesus, again, this miracle performed in their midst, the Son of God sitting with them, and they are jockeying for position. And so Jesus gives them some advice, and he gives us like short parable. He says, hey, when you're invited to a wedding feast, take the low seat because it's always better to take a low seat and be lifted up than take a high seat and be set down. I mean, can you imagine if you went to a wedding and you didn't see your name on the list or you didn't know there was like a, a table thing? And just when you sat down, you sat down at table number two and all of a sudden like the, the bride's family starts sitting with you. And you realize as they fill in, there's not going to be enough seats. And the bride herself comes and says, hey, you know, you're sitting at the kids table. How humiliating to get up in front of everybody and walk to the lowest seat. Jesus says this is just practical advice. Take the low C. It's good advice, even if you haven't figured out faith or figured out Jesus, it's always better to be lifted up than to be pushed back down, right? Uh, this afternoon, I get to travel with uh, Carissa. She's got a conference she's going to in Dallas, and she travels a lot. I never travel. I come to and from Eastside. She travels all over the country serving the church on a macro scale, and one of the things I've learned when I travel with her, it is always better to take the low seat because she travels so often. She has all the perks. She boards early, TSA pre-check. I've got none of those, and so I always try to sneak in with her. Like, in TSA, they don't care like, that I'm married to her. I don't have pre-check, right? And so, like, we're going through the line, and there's, you know, all the paupers in the big line. It takes 17 hours to get through security. There's, like, six people in the, the TSA pre-check. And so she always gets I think, well, I'll just go with her. It never fails. You get to that TSA agent, they, they, they see her and her ticket and their whatever they let her through. I hand them my ticket, and they say, sir, you have to go over with the peasants. Like, you have to wait. Chris is, like, eating on the other side of security, and I'm still taking my shoes off and emptying all my luggage, getting the full pat down. It's not pleasant. My point is it's much better to take the low seat and be invited into a place of honor than take a high seat. And so it's practical advice, but even more than that, it is the posture of the kingdom. Like humility is the posture of the kingdom. What God delights in is when his people choose a humble position, a humble posture. Why is that? Because we're never more like Jesus than when we choose to humble ourselves. I love how the Apostle Paul writes this in his letter to the church in the first century city of Philippi, Philippians chapter 2. If I've read it once, I've read it a hundred times. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. He says to the church, to believers gathered together, much like we're gathered together this morning. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If there's any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, what he's saying is if any of these things about Jesus are true, like if you have experienced any of these things that we have claimed about Jesus to be true, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying like if any of these things about Jesus are true, then then work. Like work on being unified together as a church. And then he goes on, here's how you do that. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vacancy, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Take the low seat. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he gives the example of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. By being born in the likeness of men and being founded human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every niche in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what I love about this is not just that it's an encouragement for us to be humble. Like Paul could write in his apostolic authority to the church, to believers like you and I in the first century, the 21st century, and every century in between, like just be humble. Like that's what you're supposed to do. But he doesn't do that. He shares the gospel. And he says, the reason as followers of Jesus, that we should be a humble people, that we should choose to take the low position, because Jesus, who was there when the world was created, who was at work to create the world and everything we see and everything we know, he stepped down. He didn't just take the low seat at a banquet, he stepped down from heaven to earth so that, took on the form of his creation to go to a cross so that we could know Jesus, so that we could know God, that we could have a restored relationship with him. It is the gospel message that Jesus, who had the the earth as his footstool, came from heaven to earth so that we could know God. We're never more like Jesus than when we choose to humble ourselves for the sake of others, for serving others, for promoting others. And then, what is the result of that? What did God do? It says he exalted Jesus Jesus took the humble position. He came to earth. He took on the form of his own creation. He died on a cross. And then it says, therefore, as a result of his humility, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And you get this beautiful picture of the ascension of Jesus. You've got the... the. Um, uh, the incarnation, he comes to earth, he crucifixion, he dies on a cross, he's buried in a tomb, he's raised from the dead, and then after that period of 40 days, he ascends back to the Father's right hand. And God takes Jesus because of his humble position, and he exalts him higher than anything or anyone else, so that for the rest of human history, people would look to and worship Jesus. And what Paul says is is true, that he's highly exalted today, according to the latest data, which is a few years old, more than 2.3 Billion people around the world call themselves Christians, following the example in the life of Jesus Christ. 2.3 billion people in millions from years past, because Jesus has been highly exalted because of his humble. So when we think about what Jesus says here in Luke chapter uh, 14, about the posture of the kingdom, this position where we hum- whoever humbles himself, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We take the low seat to follow the example of Jesus. What would it look like if we humble ourselves and let God lift us up? Like, this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. You know, we talk about the ideas of Jesus, but like, what would it look like in your life and in my life if we humbled ourselves? Like, if you examined your life, where's an area where you're promoting yourself that if you humbled yourself and made much of Jesus? I love the definition of humility. It's not thinking less of ourselves. That's false humility. It's thinking of ourselves less right? Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking of ourselves less. What would it look like if we think of ourselves less and think of God more? Like when we wake up in the day instead of the first thing that comes to mind is all the things that I need to get accomplished. If it's like, how can I sit at God's feet? How can I spend time with him? Maybe it's just a few minutes before you get out of bed, before you put your feet on the ground to spend time praying, thanking God for his provision and his grace in your life. I promise you that will frame the way the rest of your day goes. Instead of thinking about all the ways we can advance ourselves, just thinking, how, God, how can I serve God? How can I advance his church? Instead of promoting origin, how can I come alongside God and share this good news, this gospel that I believe with other people so that their life might look differently? How can I humble myself to make disciples and share the story of how God is changing my life every day so that he can change the life of someone else? When you're invited, take the low C and trust that God will lift you up. Here's was one of my convictions this week. Sometimes humility just Looks like simple obedience. Like sometimes humility just looks like simple obedience as we come to God and we sit with Him in His Word and He speaks to us through this living and enduring Word of God. It just means I'm just going to be obedient. Even if I don't understand, even if I don't have it figured out, even if it doesn't make sense to me, I'm going to trust that God cares for me and He knows what's best for me. And in doing so, God will take care of the rest. And that could apply to any area of life, right? When it comes to finances. I don't understand. It doesn't look like there's enough. I have all of these things I'd like to spend money, but God says I need to trust him with the first fruits. I need to give. I need to give generously. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tithe that first 10% off the top back to God. I'm going to humble myself in my position and my priorities. I'm going to give to him, and I'm going to let him lift me up. I'm going to humble myself when it comes to relationships. You know, I, I, so, some of you I know, and rightfully so, desperate to be in a relationship, but I'm going to trust that God knows what's best, that I'm going to be faithful, I'm going to choose wisely, I'm going to find godly people and surround myself with them, and I'm going to trust that God who knows me and cares for me will do what's best for me. Your family and the way you live life as a family, the way you parent, the way you make disciples, the way you go about work the way you steward your time and your resources, that God knows what's best. Humble yourselves. James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I love that because this is James, the brother of Jesus, and he says, If you humble yourselves, if you, take a, if you think of yourself less and you think of God more, if you humble yourself before the Lord, he will exalt you. It doesn't say he might exalt you. It says he will exalt you. Now, what he chooses to do as he exalts you is up to him. We don't get to decide that when we humble ourselves, but nonetheless, God will lift us up. Then Jesus goes on and he says this in verse 12. He said, he said to the man who had, been in, who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers, your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest also they invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He's just us some very practical advice. You have this big banquet. You've invited all of your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, the people that are going to pass you on the back. He says, if you want to know what it's like to humble yourself, when you, invite, when you throw a party, you can invite your friends, but don't just invite your friends. Invite some people that can't pay you back. Because they can't pay you back, God will be the one to repay you. All right, and then we get to the text that we're actually using for the sermon. So that was all just kind of the introduction. Verse 15. When one of those I love this, so just think about what's going on. Like we, we can easily just kind of get into the story and, and read through it really quickly, but Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He knows the cross is ahead of him. He knows that his time is limited. He's traveling with the people, teaching the people. He, he gets an invitation to one of the religious leaders' house, and he knows before he even goes that they're skeptical of him. But he goes anyway, and he leverages that invitation as an opportunity to teach the Pharisees, to teach the people, and to teach us things about the kingdom of God that he can heal and restore, that he will take those who are down and out and make them well, that if we take a humble position before him, he will exalt us. And then he gives some practical instruction to these religious leaders who thought more of themselves than they should. Hey, invite some people in that can't pay you back. That'll help you. And then from the table, someone blurts out, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said blessed is everyone who eat bread in the kingdom of God. And I love these moments in scripture because like, this is us through and through. Like when Jesus is kind of laying it on thick and he's starting to convict us, we like to just go back to something we read about at a time that we were more comfortable with and just kind of throw it out to Jesus, right? Like and as a, as a pastor, whenever someone finds out I'm a pastor, it becomes obvious very quickly, very quickly, how familiar they, familiar they are with faith. And I don't care. I mean, I look for everyone as an opportunity to invite them to East side, but, like, if they're like, hey, what do you do for a living? like, I'm a pastor. Like, oh, man, that's really cool. You know, my favorite verse is, and it's always John chapter 3, verse 16. That's the only one they know. And you really know that they haven't really read their Bible because they quoted in King James. Like, their grandma or their great grandma, you know, for God so loved the word, perish. When do you ever use the word perish? Like, thou shalt not perish, right? Like, never. Well, they just kind of blurt out something spiritual because they think I'm spiritual. I've got them fooled. They think I'm spiritual and they want to be spiritual. And that's what's going on here in this moment. Jesus is laying it on thick and they're starting to get kind of uncomfortable. And so somewhere, someone from the table just says, hey, Lord, blessed is the man who will eat the bread and the kingdom of God. I think I read that once back in vacation Bible school. And he seems kind of foolish. He's not completely wrong. Like, As Kevin talked about in the communion meditation, all through scripture, what is to come is described as a feast. Like when we get to get into God's presence, Isaiah, even Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 25 says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts, he's talking about heaven, will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined so this guy's having a, a feast in the Pharisee's house, and Jesus is there. And maybe he's recalling vacation Bible school lessons growing up, and he's getting really uncomfortable with what Jesus is saying. So he just kind of blurts out, man, blessed is the man who eats this feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus doesn't miss an opportunity to teach the people. And so it's like Jesus almost says, it's funny you brought that up. And he goes on to tell a parable to the point that you might be surprised when you get to that feast who is there and who is is not there. So these next few verses is a parable. A parable is just a simple story with a profound spiritual truth. It's how Jesus often taught so the common, ordinary people like you and I could understand the things of the kingdom of God. And hear the parable that Jesus shares, starting in verse 16. Blessed is the man who everyone who eat bread in the kingdom of God. Verse 16, but Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. This is a pretty familiar scene in Jesus' day. I mean, Jesus is literally at a banquet. But they, people would throw this really big banquet, lavish banquet. This guy is described, banquet is described as a great banquet. Uh, and, and he would send out invitations to invite many people. One of the things they did when they invited someone to a big banquet like this is it would take a long time to make preparations. And people were coming from far away, and so they didn't know exactly when the banquet would start. And so they would send out almost to save the date. No, we're going to have a banquet. It's going to be in a few weeks, and we want you to start getting ready for it. We'll send a second invitation, a more formal invitation, when the banquet is ready. But save the date, because this banquet is going to be well worth the wait. That's what Jesus is referring to. He says, "A, a man once gave a great banquet, and he sent out many save the dates. He invited many. Verse 17, and at the time for the banquet, when the food was ready, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, and I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. And so the, the banquet is being prepared and the save the date goes out. And all of these people, they got invited to the banquet. And when the, the food is ready and everything is in place and all the uh, energy and effort have been poured in this banquet, everything is ready. They send a servant to bring, to bring the guests in. But ex- instead of being excited, these guests begin to make excuses. And honestly, they're not very good excuses, are they? I mean like the first guy says I've bought a field I must go see it like they didn't even have the internet to see like what there were no pictures on realtor.com right so like who would buy a field without knowing what was there surely he had already been there the other guy says I've bought five yoke of oxen some Commentator scholars estimate that that was two to two and a half years uh, worth of wages. That'd be like being a, buying a high-end luxury car without ever looking under the hood. Surely the man had already seen his oxen. And kind of like Kevin joked, the third one says, I just got married. Well, what new bride wants to get all dressed up and put on her nice outfit and go to a big party? Right? Like, that's not a very good excuse. Every woman would want to go to that. Now, granted, in those days, women weren't exactly welcome at these meals, but that's another story for another day. So Instead of being excited, they began to make excuses. Why? Because here's the thing. Other things, their things, were more important to them than the banquet that had been prepared for them. They wanted to enjoy their possessions. They wanted to enjoy their people more than they wanted to enjoy the presence of the one who prepared the banquet for them. I mean, Why do you throw a banquet in the first place? Because you want to celebrate someone. You want to spend time together. If we, these people, instead of getting excited about the banquet that they have been invited to, they take the invitation for granted and they begin to make excuses. The first guy says, man, I've just bought a field. This would be like, if we were to press the, the symbolism, this would be his possessions. I mean, I've got these things. I want to get some more things. I want to get my, my possessions in order. And so I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip the party that's being prepared. I'm going to go spend, spend some money, buy a field. Another guy says, I bought five yoke of ox, and this was their modern-day tractor, right, to work the field. This was the guy saying, man, I'm more focused on my work. I'm more focused on my career path than I am on being invited to this party. The third guy says, I've just, I've just, I've just bought a wife. Maybe. I don't know how it worked. I just married a wife. I just married a wife. I, I want to go spend time with my people instead of spending time in the presence of the one who's preparing the party for me. All three of those things translate seamlessly through time. What do we prioritize over spending time in the presence of the one who's preparing a banquet for us? Do we prioritize our possessions? I mean, we might be more focused on possessions now than they were then. Like, do we spend more time thinking about the things that we can buy and get, buy and sell our possessions than spending time in the presence of God? What about our work, our career path? Like, honestly, like, if we're going to Jesus was pretty hard-hitting teaching. Like, how many of you, when you wake up in the morning, the first thing that comes to mind is the goodness of God or the to-do list for the work that day? I struggle with that every day. I'm trying to discipline my mind because as soon as my eyes open, I think about all the things that need to be done for work. But I'm trying to think, first and foremost, God, I'm so thankful for your goodness and your grace. Do we prioritize work and a career path? Do you miss corporate worship gathering? Do you miss time with God because you're so focused on getting the job done? Do we prioritize people? people in our life or people we want in our life instead of instead of spending time trusting God and do we use these things as excuses to avoid accepting the invitation into the presence of God I wonder what caused them honestly like I wonder what caused them to prioritize people and possessions and their career path over the invitation to the party like they knew the party was coming all I can think of is that they were taking God for granted like, they were taking the banquet for granted. they got in to save the day, and they thought, oh, that's really nice. And they thought, maybe, maybe I'll go someday. Maybe I'll go. Maybe I won't go. The invitation will always be there. And they're taking, taking the relationship with God for granted. I think someday we do that. We think someday, like, we know the invitation is hanging out there. Like, you've heard the good news. You've heard the gospel. Surely this isn't the first time. You know it's out there, but you're like, man, someday when I'm older. That's for when I'm older. That's where when I'm my dad's age or my grandfather's age, like that's when I'll take faith seriously. That's when I'll accept that invitation into the banquet that God's preparing for me, into a relationship with him. Man, that's for when things get hard. That's for when uh, I go through difficult times in life. That's when, and if you're going through a difficult time in life, it's a good time. But here's the thing, delayed obedience is disobedience. This invitation is sent out. Everything is ready. God has done the work to invite us into his presence. And we'll finish the parable pretty quickly. It says this. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry, and he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has already been done, and still there is room. The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And it's just this beautiful picture in in light of Jesus talking to the people about humility, taking the low seat. The people who were expected to be there, They took their invitation for granted. So what does God do? God is obviously represented by this man throwing the banquet. what does God do? He says, go out and you find anyone and everyone. Find the low people, the people that would never be invited to a dinner, the people that no one would associate with, the people that have nothing else to prioritize over me, and you invite them in. And the servant comes back. He says, sir, that's been done." He says, then go find more. And you compel them. You urge them to come in because I want my table to be filled. God is more willing to save than sinners are. God is often more willing to save than sinners are willing to be saved. So much so, it's better in this story to be an outcast, invited to the banquet, than to be cast out of the presence of God. I love Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's this beautiful picture, like we are those on the outskirts, we've, our life has fallen apart, we're, we've sinned, we've separated from God, that's when God sent Jesus to prepare an invitation for us. In the first recorded words of Jesus from his ministry, from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, says this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you realize there's nothing you need more than God. What is the takeaway from today's text? That God is inviting you and he's inviting me into a banquet through relationship, to table fellowship, to spend time with him. He's inviting us even more into an intimate relationship with him. And Jesus is the one who has made it all possible. The question we have to ask is, are we going to humble ourselves enough to hear that invitation? Uh, R.C. Sproul, Nick shared this quote with me. R.C. Sproul uh, said, in two decades of teaching theology, I've had countless students ask me why God doesn't save everybody. You ever have that question? Like, if God's a good God, why doesn't he save everybody? He says, only once in two, in two decades, 20 years of teaching theology, only once did a student come to me and say, there's something I just haven't figured out, I can't figure out. Why did God redeem me? It's the humble position. Understanding that God has done for us, he's accomplished for us what we could never accomplish on our own. He's prepared a banquet for us, an eternal banquet. He's invited us to participate, to be a part of it. The question is, I mean, are we going to humble ourselves enough to hear that invitation? Are we going to humble ourselves enough to hear what God is trying to do? I know we are coming to Jesus from all different positions in life today. Some of you guys have been walking with God for so long, we have to ask ourselves, like, are we more like the Pharisees? Have we invited Jesus in? He's given us invitation, but we almost take God for granted. And maybe this is where Jesus is saying, we've got to be Humble poor in spirit, realizing that even if we've been walking with God, if we've experienced his goodness and grace, he has accomplished for us something on the cross that we could not accomplish on our own. Maybe you're making your way to Jesus for the very first time when you're hearing the gospel and it doesn't even fully make sense, but what I want to make clear is that God is inviting you into a relationship with him through Jesus. Maybe you're hearing the gospel for the first time in a long time or it's sinking in because the circumstances of your life have just got you. If you. Maybe you didn't humble yourself, you've been humiliated by what's going on with your family or your job or your career or something like that. Jesus is, is here to say, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will exalt you to eternal life. I love what the Apostle Peter, I'll close with this, I love what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, I've lost my notes, can you just put it on the screen, there you go. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach Repentance says so the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise like he wants everyone come to repentance, everyone to come to a restored relationship with him. But even though God is eternally patient, infinitely patient, there's still a sense of urgency because the day of the Lord will come like a thief when we least expect it. He says the heavens will pass away with a roar. Heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And what Peter is saying is he saying, like, God wants everyone to be at the banquet. There is more room at the banquet than people willing to accept an invitation. The question is, man, are you going to humble yourself to accept an invitation, or are you going to make excuses? There's a sense of urgency. God is inviting us into his presence. He's the symbolism of a banquet. Think about how intimate things are when you're at a, a table fellowship. Yesterday, we had a banquet of sorts. It was much less lavish than in the first century. It was my brother's birthday, my older brother's birthday. And, um, and we had the whole family together. And it's a it's table, and we actually had more people at the table than we had chairs for. It was just close fellowship and lots of food, more food than we could eat. And it was just a, a good time of fellowship. And I was looking around that table and I was thinking, and these kind of relationships that we have, these friendships with our family, that's exactly what Jesus has invited us into. Except for instead of with our family, it's with the creator Of the universe. And sin separated us from God, but Jesus invited us back in. He made it possible as we follow along with him in his story, we're following him literally to a restored relationship with God. Father, we're so thankful for your goodness and your grace. What a privilege it is to read stories like this from 2,000 years ago that have passed the test of time, that have passed through time to speak to our soul father i pray that as we think about what you've accomplished for us on the cross that you might invite us in whether father it's for the very first time we're hearing this gospel or we're hearing it for the first time in a long time it's just beginning to sink in Lord, I pray that as we read these words that we would think about what you have done for us what you've accomplished on our behalf that we could never accomplish on our own and wherever we find ourselves wherever uh, pride is is seeped into our life Lord, that we would just humble ourselves that we would take simple steps of obedience that we take a simple step of obedience today to put our faith in you, to decide that we want what you have to offer more than what we could provide for ourselves. Father, if we haven't put our faith in you today, that we would not leave here without asking someone, what does it mean to follow Jesus? How can I start following him? We can have that conversation, literally follow Jesus together into eternal life. But Father, for many of us, I think we've been walking with you for a long time, and if we're not careful, we're in danger of becoming like the Pharisees, quoting spiritual things that we've heard growing up and missing the presence of the one who is working in our midst. Father, I pray that as a church, we would not miss the powerful moments in your presence. Corporately, as we gather for worship, as we sing songs that make much of you, as we sit alone in our prayer times each and every day, Father, that we would realize that we are graciously invited in to the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you stepped down from heaven to earth, took on the form of your creation so that you could go to a cross, so that you would make a way for us to have an intimate fellowship relationship with our Heavenly Father. We love you. We thank you so much for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.